There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. It's great to have you with us again. Today's guest is former National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster. General McMaster, welcome to Next Step Forward for what I'm sure is going to be an enlightening and informative program. Hey, Chris, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Really appreciate your time, sir. General McMaster is a native of Philadelphia, and General, just you know, uh, my listeners know that I'm a diehard Cowboys fan, so maybe for some time at the end, we can talk about the woes of the NFC East this year, <laughs> but we'll save that for the end. General McMaster graduated from the United States Military Academy in 1984. He served 34 years as an Army officer, earning numerous commendations and awards, including the Bronze Star and Purple Heart. He retired as Lieutenant General in 2018. He, of course, also served as a National Security Advisor to President Donald Trump. General McMaster is also Dr. McMaster. He holds a PhD in history from the University of North Carolina and has taught at West Point. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at, Sir at Stanford University. And he also has a new book out titled Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. General, it's been a very eventful few weeks leading up to this year's general election and obviously in the days since then. Some national reporters and many pundits have focused on and speculated about whether or not our country will have a peaceful transition of power. That's the kind of talk we've never heard of before and it has unnerved some Americans. What do you believe is going to happen between now and inauguration day on January 20th? Hey, Chris, uh, I don't think we have anything to worry about, thanks to our founders. So what, what, our, what our right about in battlegrounds is and the need for us to, have, to be competent strategically, but also to be confident, confident in who we are as a people and confident in our democratic principles and institutions and, and processes. And, and you know, our, our founders were brilliant about this, right? They had lived through the the, the bloody wars uh, in, in England in the 17th century. And they, they thought about, okay, what could go wrong? And they tried to put in institutional countermeasures to, to what could go wrong. So, you know, for example, the executive branch of our government has no role in the transition at all. And so there have been these speculations about, you know, what if, and, and even speculation about the, the military, which, which is kind of crazy talk, I think. So Chris, I, I feel good about it. I mean, our institutions are strong. Of course you have, you know, the Republican Party challenging election results in the states. Hey, but we have a legal process that they're going through, right? So, you know, the people who decide who's going to be president are the American people when they vote. And then if they don't get it, if, if there aren't enough electoral uh, college votes, it goes to the House of Representatives. And if it needs to be adjudicated, it's done by the courts. And I think all those adjudications will be at the state level. I don't think we should worry about it, Chris. You said that it's tough to put together a positive agenda if there's only 70 days left in an administration. So what do you make of President Trump's post-election personnel changes at the Pentagon, including the firing of Secretary Esper? Yeah, well, you know, the, I mean, the, a positive agenda would be to ensure the smooth transition, right? Because all of us as Americans should want now the elected president to succeed. But, you know, I think these last minute personnel changes, if they are for a policy agenda, I think that agenda would be most likely be more, you know, destructive than, than, than constructive. And I think we see that now with this drive to disengage all of our forces out of Afghanistan, right? Which which is really a continuation of the flawed policies of the Obama administration and the Trump administration, essentially doubling down on those flaws. In particular, you know, this assumption that the Taliban is somehow completely separate from other jihadist terrorist organizations, which it's not, uh, or this belief that you know power sharing with the Taliban might be something palatable to to to, to all of us, and uh, which of course it would not either. I mean, we we know with Taliban control looks like. It looks like 1996 to 2001. Uh, it looks like you know, a, a group that, that um, is determined to, 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 uh, to, to brutally oppress the Afghan people, but then also to reinforce these jihadist terrorists who are a threat to all humanity. You said during an interview on Veterans Day that transition periods between administrations are a sensitive time because adversaries may choose to act out. Are you especially concerned about the potential for problems this year because the president has refused to concede? No, I, I, I don't think so. I think that they would act out you know, in any circumstance. But if there is a if there is an appearance that we're weak, right, then, of course, that will embolden 
those who, who want to accomplish objectives through the use of force or through forms of aggression that just fall below the threshold of what might elicit a military response. And I think if you are the Chinese Communist Party leadership now, you know, you're looking at the United States and you're seeing the United States, you know, emerging, we, we hope for, at this stage, uh, or, or enmeshed in, you know, a quadruple crisis, a crisis associated with a, a pandemic, a recession, uh, the social divisions laid bare by George Floyd's murder and the, and the protests and, and violence that followed that, uh, you know, uh, uh, dissatisfaction over issues such as inequality of opportunity. Uh, and now, of course, this vitriolic political season that, that we're in. Uh, so I, I think that it is likely that, that the Chinese Communist Party hasn't been boldened in this way. And you've seen it with this wolf warrior diplomacy. You've seen it with massive cyber attacks against our medical research facilities uh, in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, you saw Australia come in for particular attention by the Chinese Communist Party because they had the temerity to suggest that maybe we ought to look into the origins of COVID-19. And, and then of course, the response was massive cyber attacks across all sectors of, of the Australian economy and public sector, uh, as well as, as, as aggression, economic aggression, you know, leaving you know, millions of dollars of, of, uh, of lobsters you know, rotting on, on the docks and so forth. And then, and then you know, uh, physical aggression on the Himalayan frontier with India, and uh, and in the South China Sea, and I mean, I could go on about this, right? Now. So I think it's 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 in many ways already happening, Chris, uh, as we're seeing uh, we're seeing aggressive actions while the world's distracted as well. I think this may have been a factor in the in Putin's poisoning of Navalny, uh, or his infiltration of of you know more you know, little green men, you know, into Belarus. Uh, so you know, maybe this had a, was a factor. In the in the aggression um, in Nagorno Karabakh as well, uh, so I think Chris, it's 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 worth watching these developments. I mean, I, I wrote the book in large measure because these are the crucial challenges that I think are, are will define uh, our our future, and and I, I hope that Americans, uh, you know, are get, regain our interest uh, in the problems and challenges abroad uh, that affect our security and prosperity here at home. How would you compare the potential dangers of this year's transition to the 2000 presidential election when things hung in the balance for more than five weeks while Bush v. Gore was resolved? Yeah, well, again, I think, if anything, that experience in 2000 should should make us confident in, in our institutions, right? I mean, you can't get much closer than that election. And there was an adjudicative process. As you remember, there was all that contention about, you know, about the attorney general of Florida and the decision that she made. But then it, it panned out when the, the whole full recount uh, was conducted. Uh, I, I think that all, we should also recognize that, you know, that that uh, you know, being a sore loser is not only is not only confined to Donald Trump and 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 uh, and his most avid supporters. If you remember when Donald Trump was elected, there's there this whole resist movement, right? And the not my president marches and so forth. So I, I think Americans have a right to express their dissatisfaction, but I, I hope that in the future. Uh, we all, you know, have play a role in restoring our confidence in our democratic principles and institutions and processes. You know, Chris. I mean, a lot of people say, "Okay, hey, look, look, America's hopelessly divided." Well, I mean, we're divided politically. If we weren't divided politically, we'd have like a one-party system, which sounds kind of like China to me. So I'm not that worried that we're divided, but I think that we just have to have civil, respectful discussions and meaningful discussions about the problems we're facing. Because I really believe, and I, I write this in Battlegrounds, I think if we started our conversations with what we agree on, we can get a lot done. Because I think we agree on much more than we disagree on. No, that's an excellent point. And hopefully uh, our listeners and the rest of America will take uh, heed to that. So thank you for that comment. You know, we're talking about bad actors previously. You know, who are the potential bad actors and how might they cause trouble? And what, if anything, can we do to prevent it? Well, you know, I, I think that we've got to put uh, the Chinese Communist Party at the top of the list for some of the reasons I mentioned already. I think it's very important to understand what is driving and constraining the other, right? The argument in in, uh, in battlegrounds is for strategic empathy, right? To to pay attention to what are the what is the what is the ideology, the what are the emotions, what are the aspirations that drive and constrain the other. The Chinese Communist Party is driven by fear first and foremost, fear of losing its exclusive grip on power. And that fear is also connected to a, gr a grand ambition, the ambition to, to achieve the, the national rejuvenation and to allow China to take center stage in the world, to use Xi Jinping's uh, phrase from, from October of 2017. 
And and I, I think that what China wants to do and, and what they're what they are actually doing with a, a very sophisticated and pernicious strategy is to create exclusionary areas of privacy across the Indo-Pacific region uh, and to and to to to, uh, to develop servile relationships with countries in the region that allow China to predominate uh, and to export its authoritarian mercantilist model uh, and. And you know, and and then also to challenge the United States globally. And if if China succeeds, right, the world will be less free, less prosperous, and less safe. So it is in all the free world's interest to compete effectively uh, against the, the Chinese Communist Party. And we can talk more about that if you'd like. I mean, I think Russia is also a danger, right? Russia is, does not have the resources to compete with us head to head from an economic perspective. You know, their economy is about the size of Texas, but but Putin is driven. He's, he's driven also by a fear of losing control himself uh, and, and also his drive to restore Russia to national greatness. And knowing that he doesn't have the resources to compete head to head, his theory of victory is to drag us all down under the theory that he can be, the, so, so to speak, the last man standing right in, in Europe. And what he's doing yeah. is waging a campaign of, 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 uh, of disruption, disinformation and, and denial. And in particular, he's he's using this sustained campaign of political subversion uh, that that employs cyber-enabled information warfare to to polarize our societies and to pit us against e each other, to 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 shake our, our confidence in, in who we are as a people, and to shake our confidence in our democratic principles and institutions and processes. Uh, this campaign is aimed at Europe and the United States pr primarily, and and he wants to divide us on, on issues around which we're already divided: issues of of race, issues of you know policy issues like immigration and and gun control, and uh, and so I, I think we ought to not let Putin do that. <laughs> I write a lot of in the book about what we can do to protect ourselves against that, but Chris, I think we also have to worry about these these transnational threats uh, associated with jihadist terrorist organizations in particular. In many ways, these groups, these jihadist terrorist organizations are stronger than they were on September 10th, 2001. And the, and the reason for that is that their orders of magnitude larger. You know, the Mujahideen uh, alumni of, of the, you know, the resistance to Soviet occupation of Afghanistan in the 80s, th that's, those are the people who committed the most devastating terrorist attack in history on September 11th, 2001. But these groups uh, of the Al-Qaeda alumni, the you know, the, the ISIS alumni, the Lashkar-e-Taiba alumni, they're orders of magnitude larger than that Mujahideen era alumni. Uh, and then and then also they, they're, they're trying to get their hands on the most destructive weapons on earth. So I think we have to remain engaged on jihadist terrorism. Uh, and then, and then of course, we have the hostile states of North Korea and Iran. Um, and, and, and we have these other threats that have to do with environment and energy security and climate uh, climate change and and food and water security so I write about each of these in, in the book and and I you know Chris there are you know there there's a lot there was a lot we can do to improve our strategic competence uh, to build a better future for generations to come by overcoming these challenges you mentioned Iran you know we've had obviously a particularly dicey relationship with that country especially since our January airstrike that killed their top commander General Soleimani, you said that the nuclear agreement the Obama administration signed with Iran and the same one that President Trump withdrew from was a political disaster masquerading as a diplomatic triumph. How should we deal with Iran? Well, I think when we deal with Iran, again, to apply strategic empathy, we have to recognize what is the ideology that really drives the Iranian leadership? First of all, who are the real Iranian leaders? Well, it's the supreme leader. This is Ayatollah Khamenei. Uh, and it is, it is uh, the Guardian Council and the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps. What the, what the Iranians often do is they put forward a shop window for the regime of, a, of their foreign minister or their president, but they're not the ones who are in real power. And they're not the ones who are continuing this four decade long proxy war against the great Satan, the United States, the little Satan, Israel, the Arab monarchies, and, and, uh, and, and an effort to, to, to establish Iran in a, in a position of, of power across the, the Middle East. The first step to do that, uh, they, they, they believe, is to drive us out of the Middle East. The second step to do that is to place a proxy army on the border of Israel, a country that, that they have already vowed to, to destroy. So I believe it's in it's our interest to recognize what Iran is trying to do and to work together with like-minded nations to ensure that the regime is unable to accomplish those objectives. In the meantime, I think we ought to do everything we can to encourage 
the, the, the Iranian government to shift its fundamental nature, to shift from its to stance of permanent hostility toward us uh, and to behave like a responsible nation. And, and what I argue in the book is that we ought, to, we ought to actually try to force them to make a choice, make a choice between either continuing support for terrorist organizations and, and militias that are perpetuating a cycle of sectarian violence across the greater Middle East and, and generating a humanitarian catastrophe of colossal scale uh, or, or acting like, like a, a legitimate nation. But until they act like a, like a responsible nation, they shouldn't have the benefits of being part of the international economic order. So I, I think it's really important to keep the sanctions on, on, in place on, on Iran uh, and to make it clear that they won't have uh, the, the benefits of sanctions relief and integration into the international economy uh, until they change the, you know, the, 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 their hostility toward us. You're one of the most decorated people to serve in a presidential administration. What attracted you to become national security advisor? And what's the real backstory of how you offered that role? Well, you know, Chris, I, this is the fifth president under whom I served since I, since I swore an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States when I was 17 years old going into, into West Point. So, you know, for, for me, I mean, this was a, this was a bonus round uh, in, as an active duty Army officer to be able to, to, to serve as national security advisor. You know, I had been on the receiving end of, of policies and strategies in places like like Iraq and Afghanistan that that were based, I thought, more on fantasy in Washington than reality on the ground of those places. So I thought it was an opportunity to maybe administer a corrective to unwise policies and, and strategies as well, and to help the new president uh, advance and protect American interests. So it was it was an easy decision. I, it came up quite unexpectedly. You know, I was in Philadelphia, you know, on my way to the Foreign Policy Research Institute. The job that I was in uh, was to really design the, the future army. And, uh, and I was giving a talk on, on Russian new generation warfare from a study that we had commissioned on the annexation of Crimea and the invasion of Ukraine. And I got a phone call and it was the Deputy White House Chief of Staff inviting me to go to Mar-a-Lago that weekend uh, to, uh, to interview with President Trump for the job. So. You know, I, I went home to Tidewater, Virginia, you know, and got on a, a plane to Palm Beach. I did uh, the interview the Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon. I uh, was asked to stay there to, for a second round of interviews. Um, yeah, I, on my way in for the second round of interviews, I ran into Ambassador John Bolton in the, in the men's room, who, was, who had just completed his second interview. Uh, had my interview, the president offered me the job and announced it that day. Uh, I flew back on Air Force One. I uh, got in in Ospreys that flew me back to my house in Tidewater, Virginia, packed a bag, and I went to work the next day, you know, in, 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 the, in the White House, Tuesday afternoon. So I was hired Monday, went to work Tuesday afternoon, didn't even live in Washington at the time. So obviously not a whole lot of time to prep, Chris, you know, and uh, but it was a privilege to do it. And uh, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a great it's a it's a great job. And, you know, I, you know, I, I would, uh, you know, I wouldn't have traded it for anything. I mean, I think, uh, you know, it was, it was a clear choice to continue serving and I was grateful for the opportunity. Our listeners are always interested in advice about how to be more effective and successful in their lives. One challenge for everyone is to strike that right work personal life balance. You've had the challenge of balancing massive responsibilities as, a, as an army general and an unbelievably demanding white house role and personal life. How do you make it all work? Hey, it, it's been my family, you know, it's been my wife and my daughters and my sister and my mom before she passed and my father. I mean, everybody was so supportive of my, my service. And I think, I think that's really important uh, for those, you know, servicemen and women who are serving, you know, obviously, you know, it's, it's easy to see the hardships associated with service, you know, the long time away from family being in dangerous and austere environments, obviously, you know, the most difficult is that's obviously if you see someone in, in, in your team and, and your unit the unit becomes like a family in, in the military if you see them uh, wounded or, or, or killed in action um, so you, you see all these you know the, the the arduous nature of service but oftentimes you don't see the tremendous rewards of it right it's harder to imagine and those rewards include being something bigger than part of something bigger than than yourself right being part of a team in which that man or woman next to you is willing to give everything including their own lives for you knowing that you can make a real difference in people's lives by you know, f fighting these jihadist terrorist organizations or groups like the Taliban who would want to brutally repress people, protecting our own nation and, and our own security. I mean, so there's so many rewards, but but if you don't have a support structure to, to help you do it, 
it's it's very difficult. And so I, I'm extremely grateful for my family's support because it's their support that allowed me to serve really for 34 years. Well, they say it takes a village to raise a family. So uh, kudos to you and your family. That's terrific. You know, That's earlier, I mentioned your new book. In it, you lay out a lengthy indictment of flawed policies and strategies that you've observed over the years working as a soldier, commander, and scholar. Can you share some of those examples with our listeners? Yeah. So, so you know, I, I wrote, I wrote a, a book on Vietnam called Dereliction of Duty, How and Why Vietnam Became an American War. And, and, uh, and I identified in that book some pitfalls that, that led to an unwise strategy and, and, uh, and, and, and a war that, uh, that costly lost war in, in, in Vietnam. Uh, you know, one, one of those was that it was a failure. One of those, one of those failures was to, to, to not spend enough time thinking about the nature of, of the, of the, the problem in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in Vietnam uh, and rushing right to action. Right, just get the first covert raids off. Just get the first bombing runs off. You know, just deploy the first troops. And and uh, and so I, I determined, you know, that that we, we would try to 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 administer a corrective to that. You know, when I got to the National Security uh, Council and 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 to into the White House. And and then the, a second flaw in this period was that that Lyndon Johnson really uh, wasn't basing his decisions on the situation in Vietnam. He was basing his, his decisions on. Uh, on, on his domestic political considerations. So I, I also tried to not only put in place a, a deliberate effort to frame these complex challenges we're facing, uh, but also to insulate the process from domestic political considerations, knowing that there will be those who have uh, have a voice in that in that later. And then, and then also in the run-up to Vietnam, there were people around the president who were determined to give the president the, the advice that Lyndon Johnson wanted, right? And and so I, I just I was determined to not to do that in the job as well, which probably limited my shelf life, but that's okay. I mean, I was at peace with that. And, and I, what I noticed is, is, is similar problems in both uh, Afghanistan and in Iraq. You know, we often want to debate, Chris, like, you know, should we have invaded Iraq in 2003? I think we ought to debate who the heck thought it would be easy and why did they think it would be easy? And, and, and we, we failed to recognize in both wars the important work that has to go in to, to consolidation of military gains and getting to sustainable political outcomes. And paradoxically, it's actually the short war mentality as applied both to Afghanistan and to Iraq that, that lengthened those wars and made them even more costly. So, uh, you know, as, as my friend, uh, fellow historian Conrad Crane uh, says, you know, we've never been able to never do it again. And it seems like we're just condemned to, to relearn these lessons about the need to consolidate gains and, and the need to get to sustainable political outcomes. You say this is not the book most people wanted you to write. What do you think most people expected, and why did you decide to write Battlefields instead? Well, you know, I'll tell you, Chris, a lot of people wanted me to write uh, you know, a tell-all about, about my time in the Trump administration. And, of course, you know, first, beyond the point of, okay, do we really need another tell-all on Donald Trump? I, mean, I, think, there's, I think there's something like 1,400 books out on, on that topic, you know, already. So, but, you know, I, I wanted to write something that was more useful, I, 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 thought, I thought, to readers, uh, to... Uh, to, to write a book that could help bring Americans together for meaningful discussions about the challenges we face and, and what to do about those challenges. I wanted to contribute to a deeper understanding of these challenges and what to do about them. But I also wanted to, to contribute to my own, uh, to all of our you know, education about, the, about, you know, about, uh, uh, about how we can build a better future for generations to come. And so I, I hope I pulled it off in the book. The book was, you know, it was also a continuation of my my own self-education, and and uh, you know, I got to to read and think and and write about these complex issues and and um, and and to learn about. A big theme of the book is what you call strategic narcissism, a mindset that all too often leads presidents and their advisors to craft policies based on wishful thinking. Is there a couple of examples you can share with us? Sure. You know, I, strategic narcissism is, is a danger because it's self-referential, right? But it's also, it, it's also a danger because it doesn't acknowledge the authorship over the future that others have, right? And then we therefore tend to define our policies based on what we would prefer rather than what the situation demands. So I think one of the biggest you know, examples of strategic narcissism is, is the assumptions that, that, that underpinned our approach to China in, in recent decades, and and that is the the assumption that China, having been welcomed into the international order, uh, would play by the rules, would as it prospered, liberalize its economy and liberalize its form of, of governance. This is what underpinned the the approach toward China of cooperation and engagement. 
uh, well, I think it's clear that now that the opposite is the case, right? That the Chinese Communist Party is not only endeavoring to extend and tighten its exclusive grip on power internally by stifling the, the, you know, any, any form of human freedom uh, in China, uh, but also exporting its authoritarian status model in, in a way that if they succeed, you know, the world would become you know, less free, less prosperous, and less safe. Another example of strategic narcissism, I think an extreme example today, is, is the approach toward Afghanistan in which we've essentially defined the enemy as we would like the enemy to be, rather than the actual Taliban. Uh, and so th there are many examples in the in the book. I mean, I talk about three across three administrations, right? This this belief that that if we just if we just made a you know a, an approach to Putin, uh, that Putin uh, would uh, would change his his fundamental behavior. Uh, again, based on assumptions as that, that you know that that uh, that that he would essentially be like us, and he would be driven by the same sort of calculation of interests that we have. And again, undervaluing the degree to which emotion and, and ideology uh, drive and constrain him. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back for the second part of our conversation with former National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. Or send an email to Chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. And we are back with retired Lieutenant General and former National Security Advisor. H.R. McMaster. General, going back to your book, mentions the competitions the U.S. faces with Russia and China. What should we expect from our relationship with each of those countries over the next five or 10 years? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think it's going to be competition. And I think that's the way to think about it. And that doesn't mean that competition has to lead to confrontation. I think exactly the opposite was the case. This, this strategy of cooperation and engagement, for example, with China uh, I, I think had actually emboldened China in the South China Sea and, and, and elsewhere. And I think the, the elements of that competition ought to be a bit introspective as well, right? To make ourselves better. So in the chapter on what to do about the, the, the threat from the Chinese Communist Party, uh, the, the title of that chapter is, is turning weakness into strength, right? Let's turn what the, what the Chinese Communist Party views as our weaknesses or what would be weaknesses inside of their country 
as our greatest strength. And so what is that? Well, it's, it's the fact that we have a say in how we're governed. I think it's very encouraging that that record numbers of Americans voted in, in this election, for example. That I think that bodes well for our democratic process. We ought to strengthen that and then help other nations that want to have you know, a form of representative govern, governance, because that's the greatest check toward authoritarianism. It is, by the way, why the Chinese Communist Party is so obsessed with Taiwan, because Taiwan is a shining example of a successful democracy and demonstrates to the world that, hey, the Chinese people are not culturally predisposed for not having wanting to say in how they're governed, right? So, so I, I think that you know our democratic processes, rule of law, you know the party, Chinese Communist Party fears rule of law uh, because you know they can't just toss people in jail for 18 years if they criticize Xi Jinping, or they can't put a million and a half people in concentration camps, right? As they have in Xinjiang. So we ought to help strengthen rule of law inside of our own country. Uh, but then also help others abroad who who want to live under rule of law and to guarantee the the rights of their of their citizens, freedom of speech and freedom of the press. Right, that's that's something the Chinese Communist Party doesn't want. <laughs> and and uh, and so I, I think it's important for us to to maybe improve our you know our access to authoritative sources of information to 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 make sure that that the you know, social media and the pseudo media don't drive us apart uh, in large measure with disinformation and, and conspiracy theories and so forth. So, and that our, that our mainstream press maybe reestablishes some of their professional standards, right? I think and so in some ways there are many journalists, I mean, they, they hated Donald Trump so much that they couldn't help themselves. And I think their own profession was drugged down a little bit. So, so I, I think that's one way to think about the competition is making ourselves stronger, turning, you know, what our adversaries perceive as our weakness into our strengths. And, and on Russia, I think, you know, really, we have to pull the curtain back on this this campaign of cyber-enabled information warfare. We have to make our, ourselves again less vulnerable to it. Chris, you know, your your show is an example of uh, the importance of education, right? I think educating ourselves about the challenges we face uh, will make us less vulnerable to to, to disinformation as, as well. So, so I, it, you know, I, I think that, uh, that that there are ways that we have to to you know defend ourselves. Certainly, right? I mean, China should no longer be able to really conduct unrestricted cyber-enabled espionage against us, uh, industrial espionage against us. We have to defend against that, for example. But we also ought to just make ourselves more competitive. Yeah, you're talking about competition with Russia and China, talk about the cybersecurity. Did the interference from Russia in the 2016 election really expose those holes in U.S. cybersecurity? And is this now a, the new arms race in terms of cyberspace and cybersecurity? And is it bigger than we realized? Yeah, it, it's much bigger than most people realize. I mean, I think we we've, we've realized it for you know for a couple of decades now, right? There have been a number of of aggressive actions in, in cyberspace against us, you know, but again against uh, other other countries. It's it's been growing. I mean, I think back all the way back to two thousand seven, Iran attacked our financial sector. So you have you have to think about the range of threats, right? So it's attacks against infrastructure. This could be power, uh, financial, which I mentioned. It could be transportation infrastructure communications, right? So we have to defend our infrastructure against offensive cyber attacks. There, there, the other form that we have to worry about, though, is is, uh, is cyber crime, right? Cyber crime associated with ransomware. You know, North Korea is probably the biggest leader in state-sponsored uh, cyber criminal activities because it's a big, it's a big source of revenue for them uh, as well. Then we also have to worry about industrial espionage, cyber-enabled industrial espionage. This is where probably China has the lead. And if anybody's interested, if you, if you read the December 2018 Department of Justice indictments uh, against APT-10, which is the, the Advanced Persistent Threat 10, the, 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 the hacking entity in, in uh, China, uh, it's, worth, it's worth reading that. It's all open source and it's a great education about what they're doing. Or you can read Battlegrounds too, I summarize it there. <laughs> and, then, uh, and, then, and then finally, you know, we, we also have to worry about this cyber-enabled information warfare. So in 2016, we saw vulnerabilities mainly in the area of cyber-enabled information warfare against us. You know, I believe, having looked at this pretty closely, you know, that that I don't think Russia care who who I don't think they care who wins in American elections. I think what they really want to do is make sure that the maximum number of Americans doubt the legitimacy of the result. Right? They want to reduce our confidence again in in, in our in our democratic process. And um, and we were we were we were very vulnerable to it because uh, we, first of all, you know, we had not done everything we could to protect systems. 
uh, you know, and you saw this with the DNC hack, right? I think that I think they actually used the password password to get into it, right? So it wasn't like a hard to get in there. Uh, so we we didn't have cyber defensive uh, mechanisms in place, uh, and then and then also we we didn't have offensive cyber as part of our good defense, and and so I, I'm I'm kind of proud of what we you know what we did in the government uh, in 2017 and and into 2018 to secure the 2018 election, and then to continue to make improvements before the 2020 election. So Americans should have you know extreme confidence in our in in the sanctity of our electoral process. Uh, there's a new organization called the cyber infrastructure security organization that's doing a great job, by the way, uh, and working with, with all the states, for example, uh, to, to protect their, all these unique election processes that we have at the state level. That's actually, I think, a source of strength for us. I mean, you know, it's, it's pretty much impossible to go at, you know, for, for, uh, an adversary to, to hack into 54 different systems. Right. So anyway, I, I mean, the short answer to your question is, I think we're much better off, Chris, 2016 was an eye opener. Uh, and but you know this is a continuous fight. You know one of the reasons we could tell it was Russian bot and troll traffic is because the the peak time was during business hours in Moscow. You know well okay well they learned that lesson and they're offshoring a lot of it and they're just coming in at different hours right. So it's a continuous interaction uh, between our cyber warriors you know and and uh, and our cyber adversaries. What are the most pressing national security concerns internally as well as externally? The United States today, you know, I guess what keeps HR McMaster up at night? Well, you know, I, I, there are a number of concerns uh, that, that ought to, I think, that, that warrant our attention, right? Uh, you know, but overall, I'm confident. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't, it doesn't keep me up at night, Chris, because I think that, that America has tremendous competitive advantages. And, and this is what I, I write about in the conclusion of the book. I guess what's most disappointing to me, maybe, of greatest concern lately, you know, are, 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 are these divisions in our society? And of course, political divisions are fine. But what, what, I, what I worry about these days, Chris, is what I see as kind of a destructive interaction between, uh, between extremes, maybe extremes of maybe identity politics and, and bigotry and racism and, and how this is creating these centripetal forces that are pulling us apart from each other. And, you know, I, I think it's important for us to practice strategic empathy abroad, but it's also very important for us to empathize with one another as Americans. And, and you know, I think that we ought to all, especially in the midst of this pandemic and all the challenges we're facing, great venues like yours, like this, this show, where you can have, you know, long, full, respectful uh, discussions of the challenges we're facing. We ought to try to do that in our communities, in our, in our schools, you know, and, and demand more from our political leaders. I, I have this idea, Chris, I mean, I hope it's right, <laughs> that, that our media and our political elites are much more polarized than the vast majority of Americans are, right? And, and so I, I think we have to just, we have to come together and, and respect one another and restore civility and, and, and demand that our political leaders not compromise our principles to score partisan political points. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, to that point about, you know, the civil divide, if you will, you know, I look at America as really a bell curve in terms of your political beliefs with 50% on the left, 50% on the right. But for the most part, we agree on most things, but it's always that five or 10% on the tails of the, the, that bell curve that seem to have the loudest voices and, and make the most noise. And so I uh, totally agree with that point. You know, and I guess as a follow-up to that, you know, how does America get over partisan politics discourse and, and come together as a country so we can be a better America for future generations? You know, I've got three kids. I want to leave this place better than it was for me. You know, and so on. Well, okay, maybe predictably, as a historian, I'll say the study of history can help us. Right? <laughs> and and I think that what's happened is, you know, I, I think the version of 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 American history that we teach now diminishes our confidence in who we are. Now, to restore that, I don't think we should come up with some contrived, happy view of our history, right? We should learn our history with all of our flaws. But hey, we should take great pride in the radical idea of our revolution, that sovereignty lies neither with king or parliament, but with the people, right? And, and that we, we do have this great gift of having a say in how we're governed. We should celebrate that. We should also be disappointed, you know, at the founding that, that our founding did not you know, did, did not remove the greatest blight uh, on our history, which was the institution of slavery. But we should celebrate the fact that that the rights enshrined in our Declaration of Independence and, and in our Constitution, the Bill of Rights, uh, did actually make that institution untenable. And we could celebrate the fact that you know we fought our most destructive war 
uh, to, to emancipate, emancipate 4 million of our fellow Americans. We can again be disappointed, you know, in, in the failure of Reconstruction and the rise of Jim Crow and the Ku Klux Klan and separate but equal, but again, celebrate the triumph of the civil rights movement and the dismantlement of de jure segregation and inequality of opportunity. So I, I just think that, you know, that, that our, the notion of, of our history these days and the way it's taught, it's, it's sort of uh, infected by, I would call it a streak of, at least or a mild form of self-loathing, right? which is, yeah, I, I think the, you know, the, to, I'm going to oversimplify here, but it's sort of the new left interpretation of history, right? That all the ills of the world prior to 1945 were due to colonialism and all the ills of the world after 1945 were due to capitalist imperialism or whatever, you know? So I, I just think that a better understanding of, of history. And then I think that, that, that students, right, from, you know, from elementary school even, but certainly in, in, in secondary education and in academia, uh, should reject being fed any kind of an orthodoxy, right? And, and we should ensure that our academic departments and our universities don't, uh, don't, don't conform to an orthodoxy that, that provide a wide range of, of perspectives and, and scholarship so that students can make their own judgments. I think you first caught notice of people up the chain of command when your doctoral thesis, which was very critical of the presidential and military leaders who led us deeper into the Vietnam War, was published as a book while you were an army major. How does someone know when the unvarnished truth is the right career move and when it's a potential career ender? Well, I think you just have to do the right thing. I think the best, you know, I think the best advice is like if you're not concerned about your the prospects of your career, you can get a lot of good done and just let the chips fall where they may, right? And and uh you know, I didn't have the courage not to tell that story, right? Because I was, you know, I was, I was researching and learning about it. I had benefited really from uh, extraordinary leadership in in the army, uh, an army that had just kind of gone through a renaissance in the post-Vietnam period, led by a generation of really courageous and 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 I think uh, imaginative and thoughtful officers. So I was already part of a culture that was that, that was that was fine with self-criticism, right? And and actually encouraged it, right? We. You know, when we go to our training centers in our army, you know, you, you know, they, they push the limits of, of units capabilities because they realize, hey, good units have to fail. Right. So, so they can they, they can learn uh, and, and, and get better. Right. They have to be pushed to the limits of their capabilities. And so that's the kind of environment I was in in the army. And and I thought it was wholly consistent, you know, with our with our culture. You know, General Hugh Shelton, who was the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time when dereliction of duty uh, came out. He was very supportive. Uh, he sent the book to all the all four stars and all the services, and then then I served as 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 lunch entertainment for him and the, uh, and what were then the uh, the, the commanders in chief, but now the combatant commanders uh, and the, and the joint chiefs of staff. So it was it was a great privilege as an as an army major to talk to all these four stars, you know. And and the, at the intro at the intro, you know, General Shelton said, "Hey, you just read this book about how our predecessor screwed it up. This is so you don't screw it up." And so and so uh, it was humbling and a privilege to do it. It was welcomed uh, when the when Dereliction of Duty came out. Uh, I was a major at Fort Irwin, California, in the middle of the Mojave Desert, and I was the executive officer of a cavalry squadron. And my my phone rang. Uh, and I, I picked it up, and it was Colonel David Petraeus, who uh, who was the executive officer for General Shelton. And he said, "I'm calling to tell you that the chairman just read your book. He loves it, and he wants you to give me. He wanted me to give you my number. And if anybody messes with you, call call me." <laughs> so I had, you know, I had I had top cover, so to speak, I guess, Chris. And and uh, and anyway, I was I was very grateful for the way the book was received, you know, across the military services in particular. You've noted that there are lessons from war and warfare that apply to the business world. That's of particular interest to many listeners as they strive for greater self-empowerment and improvement. One of those lessons is the importance of understanding the difference between the nature of war and the character of warfare. What do you mean by that? Okay, Chris, I think we get into trouble when we think, hey, really, really the next experience, in this case, the next war is going to be fundamentally different from all those that have gone before it. And, you know, when when uh, when people ask, you know, why study history? I, I think in large measure, it's an exercise in humility, right? Because if you're not interested in history, you're just say, basically saying, hey, all I need to know it, for my life is my personal experience. That's going to that's going to be everything, right? You're not going to learn from the experiences of others or, or those who have been through challenges before you. So I, I, I you know, I, I argue for for paying attention to continuities. The, 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 uh, the great American historian Carl Becker 
uh, said in a speech in the 1930s to the American Historical Association, he said, memory of past events and anticipation of future should walk hand in hand in a happy way without one, dis one disputing primacy over, over the other. And, and, uh, and I think when we, when we look at our experiences in the wars of the, of the early 21st century, uh, we're going to attribute many of the difficulties that we had in places like Afghanistan and, and, uh, and in Iraq to neglecting continuities in the nature of war. And, you know, in, the, in the late 1990s, many uh, accepted a, a sort of orthodoxy about future war associated with what they were calling the revolution in military affairs. Future war was going to be fast, cheap, efficient, waged at standoff range, basically, uh, because of our technological military prowess. And this was a setup. It was a setup because we forgot uh, really four key elements of, of continuity in war. First of all, as we already talked about, right, war is an extension of politics, right? So it's like the Geico commercial. Everybody knows that, right? Because that's what Carl von Clausewitz said. But, but really, you know, what that means is you have to consolidate gains to get a sustainable political outcome. War is human. You know, war, it, it, people fight for the same reasons that Thucydides identified 2,500 years ago, fear, honor, and interest. You know, war is uncertain because it is interactive and because your adversary has a say in the future course of events. I mean, just think about the wars we've been in. We, we, we've, we've, we now have a habit of announcing years in advance exactly the number of troops we're going to have in a, in, in a place and what they're going to do. And I mean, how can that make any sense, right? If, to give your plans to your, to your enemy? Is this a script that we're going to ask our enemies to, uh, to adhere to? And then, and, then, and then finally, war is a contest of wills. And this is where I think our leaders have failed uh, to tell the American people consistently, uh, really, really uh, give them two, two, two messages, right? And the first is, what's at stake? What's at stake in Afghanistan today? Uh, and then secondly, you know, what is a strategy that will deliver a, a, an acceptable outcome, a, a favorable outcome at a cost that's acceptable to the American people? And, and, and I, I think that it should be no surprise that, that more and more Americans are calling to, you know, to end these endless wars uh, because they haven't, been, they haven't been given that information um, from, uh, from our political leaders mainly. Another lesson you've emphasized is the importance of navigating uncertainty especially in competitive situations. Your philosophy is that ambiguous goals lead to confusion and confusion leads to scattered energy. How should we go about eliminating uncertainty in our decision-making? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, I think just by recognizing the, the role of contingency and, 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 the, and the fact that you can't predict the, the, the future course of events precisely in a competitive environment, in a competitive environment of war or, you know, or in business, for example, competition over market share, right? With, with competitors. And so it's, I think it's, it's immensely important, though, to have a goal to know where you're heading so that your team and those you're working with can take initiative because they'll, they'll, they'll see opportunities. And, and it, so if, if you don't have a goal, if you don't have clear objectives, you know, um, then, then people don't, don't really know, you know how they can contribute to achieving your vision and to accomplishing those, those objectives. So I think you know I think that, that once you establish these goals and, and objectives, though, what you have to do is is to examine uh, and and try to assess the degree to which you have agency and influence over the environment, so that you can get to those goals and objectives. You have to sort of inventory uh, the the uh, you know what are the obstacles that are impeding you from getting to your objective state or, or and to accomplishing your goals, uh, and what are the opportunities that can be exploited. Often this is in partnership with others. This is this is when when in, 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 as you're thinking about developing a strategy, you want an interdisciplinary perspective. You want a diverse perspective brought to bear uh, to the, your uh, to to your environment and and to your competition, because it's often in the combination of, of different different efforts that that you can achieve synergy and and create opportunities. So, you know, I, the, I, I discussed this in the, in the final chapter of the book a, a little bit, this idea of strategic competence, what it means and how to go about it. And, and I think it does apply to business as well as, as to, to foreign policy and, and national security strategy. You've been on Time's list of 100 most influential people and hailed as the architect of the future U.S. Army. What are you most proud of in your military career? Well, I'm, I'm most proud of... of of uh, assignments in which I was able to uh, to be a part of a team, to be able to build teams and, and lead teams uh, that demonstrated uh, tremendous courage and effectiveness in combat. Right, so I I, I think uh, 
you know, uh, that command is always special, right? Because you are part of a team that takes on the qualities of of a family. And then to be able to to build and and lead a team uh, where the stakes are are so high, I think is a tremendous privilege, right? So I, I think command assignments are those that I, you know, that I cherish the most. Um, and, um, uh, and have the fondest memories of, and, and, you know, I, I think that, you know, that, that, uh, you know, I, what I miss the most is, is that kind of comradeship, you know, uh, that, that you have, uh, inside of a military unit, a military, a military family. You're currently a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Have you ever given any thought to run for political office? You know, what do you see no. ahead for you? No, Chris, I, I haven't, you know, I think I, I, what I want to try to do is make a contribution here, you know, I guess. Predictably, as a military officer, you know, I, I made a mission statement for myself when I retired, you know, and that mission statement was to to contribute to a deeper understanding of the greatest challenges we face uh, as, as a way to, you know, to help build a better future for for uh, for generations to come. Uh, and in so doing, to try to bring Americans back together to reverse the polarization we've seen in our, in our society. Um, obviously, the Hoover Institution and Stanford is a great place to be able to do that. Uh, I write in the last few paragraphs of Battlegrounds, how I could imagine writing a book like this any, anywhere else, right? I, I, I was able to interact with tremendous colleagues here at Hoover, but also at the, at the Hudson Institute and the Foundation for Defense and Democracy, uh, as well as a, a, a fellowship I was doing at the University of Pennsylvania. I mean, I, you know, I'm not the expert on any of these topics, right? But I, I know some of the experts. And, and so they, uh, my colleagues helped me uh, critique early drafts and work on it. And then I had these amazing students I get to work with at, at, uh, at Stanford, research assistants who, you know, helped develop evidence sheets, we call them, uh, that were relevant to the chapter outlines. And then as I drafted, I was sending to the, out to the students who, who helped me write, I think, for, you know, for a, a general readership, you know, and, and I was able to get a younger generation's re- reaction to the early drafts. That's really the readership I would like to reach. I mean, I, would love, I hope that that young uh, Americans, young people across the free world, um, read this as and, and regard it as a, as a bit of a you know a bit of a primer for the challenges that we have to face together. Well, we're running out of time here, General. So maybe we'll have you back on next time to discuss the woes of the NFC East. But General McMaster, thanks so much for being with us today, and thank you thank to our you listeners. For, thank you, sir, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. To next steps forward. I'm Chris Meek. Be sure to tell your friends and family we'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.